Hello, Lion Cook Nation. This is Ray DeLucci with the Lion Cook Thoughts Podcast. Hope everyone is doing well and staying safe. Welcome back to another episode of the show. Before we begin, just a friendly reminder that every Monday I put out the Prep List Items newsletter. This is a newsletter that goes out to people in the food industry sharing thoughts, ideas, statistics, stories, gear, and everything else in between on everything related to the food world. So if you'd like to receive that to your email inbox every Monday, go to linecookthoughts.com, put in your email, and hit subscribe. Also, if you're listening on uh, Apple Podcasts or Spotify, please leave a review. My guest today is Andrew Friedman. He's the author of Chefs, Drugs, and Rock and Roll, How Food Lovers, Free Spirits, Misfits, and Wanderers Created a New American Profession, and he's also the author of the newest book, The Dish, The Lives and Labor Behind One Plate of Food. And I really enjoyed talking to Andrew in this episode. Andrew's been on... um, a couple of times, he is someone that I you know, really look up to as a writer, as a food writer, and I think just having him on the show is always a good conversation. Andrew's been on before, so I really suge- suggest you check out those uh, interviews, but we center our conversation about his new book, like I said, The Dish, The Lives and Labor Behind One Plate of Food. I highly recommend this book. I was lucky enough to get invited to a book launch regarding Andrew's book here in Chicago, and it's based on a uh, Chicago restaurant, or a, a Behar Chef's. Um, and their way of going about creating a dish for the menu. And it goes into detail the people that led into creating that dish, the farmers, producers, line cooks, dishwashers, the ideation of the dish, and how everything in a restaurant culminates into creating food that is then served to customers. This is a book that highlights the work, the dedication, and the often misunderstood, and sometimes there's just a lack of knowledge of what it takes to actually bring a dish to life to consumers. And Andrew does a fascinating job in this um in this book, he really does a great job of really, really highlighting everything that is uh, going on in the restaurant. It's a very smooth read. It's very entertaining. It's very easy to read. And if you're in the food world, I highly suggest you take a look at it because it's a book that I think if you're in the industry, you just really appreciate. And Andrew writes in such a way that he represents the food world and the people within it very well. And I think anyone who's worked in kitchens will agree with me on that. And so I really hope you pick it up. I'm going to put a link to the book in the uh, comment section or the description of the podcast below. And I really, really hope you check it out. Um, I will also put links you know, to where you can get it. I'll also put links to his podcast and kind of where you can check out more of Andrew's work. But he's a, he, he, he's, he does it all, you know. <laughs> he has the book. Um, he's got uh, all this stuff going on with the podcast. He really, really is someone that is just moving, grooving, and putting it all together. Some really quick notes about him, uh, as you know, well as being a, an author of many different books and co-authors on cookbooks, and also being the host of his own podcast, uh, Andrew is an adjunct professor within the School of Graduate and Professional Studies at the Culinary Institute of America, an avid tennis player. He co-authored American tennis star James Blake's New York Times bestselling memoir, Breaking Back, I Lost Everything and Won Back My Life and was for several years a tennis magazine editor at large. And lastly, on Andrew, he does live in Brooklyn, New York. So with that being said, all the information on Andrew, go to the description, check it out. Andrew, thank you so much for coming back on the show. Thank you all for listening. I hope you pick up a copy of The Dish, and here we go. Mom? 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Awesome. Well, Andrew, welcome back to the show. Episode 50 was when you were first on the show. So a very long time ago, we're at 208, I believe this one will be. Uh, very honored and grateful to have you back on. Um, so if you want to start out by introducing yourself, I think that'd be a great starting point. Sure. Uh, well, first of all, it's great to be back. Thank you for having me back. And congratulations on cracking the 200 mark. A lot of people, most people don't make it that far. Uh, but my name is Andrew Friedman. I am a Brooklyn-based writer and broadcaster. I specialize in the world of chefs and restaurants. Uh, if it's not rude to mention, I have my own podcast called Andrew Talks to Chefs. Uh, my last and my last book was Chefs, Drugs, and Rock and Roll, and I have a new book that by the time this airs will be uh, released, and that is called The Dish. Perfect. And The Dish is you know a copy you sent over to me. Really enjoyed reading it. Uh, just sharing for the audience, The Dish is the lives and labor behind one plate of food. And so, getting into this conversation. I would like to start out with um, the dish you picked to surround the story on, and that is the uh, dried strip loin, tomato, and sorrel. If you want to just give a brief mention on why you picked that dish, kind of what the meaning for that dish was, and why it, basically why you were drawn to it. So um, it, it's kind of a funny answer, but, you know, I have always, uh, not always, for a few, several years now, I've been referring to myself as a chef writer, not a food writer. Um, <laughs> and um, I finally convinced a publisher to put that on the flap copy. <laughs> like they've actually gone along with it. Uh, but I say that because I really write much more about people than I do about food. Although food obviously is an integral part of all the writing I do. Uh, I did not pick the dish. I picked uh, the people and I picked the restaurant. And the mm -hmm. restaurant at the center of this book uh, had a weekly changing tasting menu uh, until I and because I had to pick the subject of the book during COVID when I, you know, we were all locked up at home um, until the, the day before I started observing at the restaurant, I did not know what the dish would be. And I had never met any of the people in the book, including Beverly Kim. Yeah. So until uh, so until I was on the ground in Chicago the day before I started observing at the restaurant to write the book, I did not know what the dish was going to be uh, because the restaurant was open Tuesday through Saturday. So they were, um, you know, getting ready to put the, the, that week's menu up. Um, and I had never met any of the principals. Uh, I had never met Beverly Kim in person, although she'd been on my show remotely, um, mm. or her husband um, and co-chef and business partner, Johnny Clark, uh, in person. Uh, so, And I'd never been to that restaurant, in fact. Uh, so it was very much based on some preliminary uh, phone calls I had with them. Um, 
you know, the funny thing I would just point out is, you know, when you say dry-aged strip loin, tomato and sorrel, the dish really is about that simple. There is a red wine and herb production as well. Um, and when they first told me that was going to be the dish, if I'm honest, I was a little worried because it is so spare. Um, but it did end up providing an entire book's worth of people to profile. And I actually love that it's as simple as it is. Yeah, no, definitely. I was caught by the simplicity of it. And just to give readers an idea of what the wherewithal dinner menu was, um, at least in the book, this is July 24th, 2021. So correct me if I'm wrong on any of the facts, but looking at it now, menu uh, snacks, which are not m- featured on the menu. That's basically a course breakdown. So snacks, broth, bread, and butter, um, which would also not be featured on the printed menu. And then one of the dishes was oats, button, chanterelles, baby corn. Then there was hake, wax beans, and vinjon. And then there's dried strip loin, tomato, and sorrel, an intermezzo. And then the dessert was roasted peaches, lemon custard, chamomile, and that was paired with a rare wine, um, Madeira. So very interesting stuff. Obviously, a pretty you know good-sized tasting menu. You, know, you could add cheese for $15, which I thought was a really good um, addition, especially for the price point of $15. Um, but yeah, no, definitely an interesting menu. So going into reaching out going on about this book i wanted to before i get to the story of like you reaching out to them and whatnot i found I was, when i was reading i found an excerpt and i want to read it because i wanted to kind of talk about this compared to your last work which i thought was very interesting so if it's all right to read a, li- a little uh, blurb that i picked up on um you say yeah. uh talking about the this is before a, a tuesday or this is a tuesday week meeting um when they're talking about the menu and you write they also personified this is about the team they also personify an industry sea change from the prior century's hard partying cooks to something le- something less self-abusive. They don't haul their bloated corpses into the kitchen, trading ribald liquor-trenched weekend war stories. Um, and then you go on to talk about uh, kind of what they have, like such as tattoos of elephants, flowers, daggers, abstract shapes. Instead, they're pink-cheeked and alert with a skip in their step and updates as wholesome as their complexions. Mindful of hydration, a couple of them sip from water bottles. It wouldn't read the least bit incongruous if one had rolled a yoga mat tucked under arm. We're there with them now this past Tuesday as the menu being served this week was conveyed. So you write Chef Drugs and Rock and Roll. This looks at the 70s and 80s. Um, also really enjoyed that book. For me, it was important because you published that in 2018 when I was still when I was just graduating college. And I really didn't know much about the industry like in that era, obviously. Um, so very important read for me. But then you look at a, a, a book like this and it's like the complete opposite of what that era was. Like times have changed, people have changed, what it means to be a chef, what's valued to be a chef. How was it for you writing this book uh, when your last work was uh, basically a history of the probably most, um, I guess you would say, uh, dangerous or uh, wild side of chefs? What was it like for you writing this book and to have such a polar opposite in kitchen culture and um, what chefs are viewed as? Uh, I mean, it, it was great. Um, it was interesting to me. I don't, you know, I, it's a lot of what hit me in this book was, you know, kind of a snowballing effect, right? Like, it wasn't like I didn't know that cooks are taking better care of themselves than they did 30 years ago. I mean, there have been articles in the New York Times about chefs' exercise routines, you know, and work-life mm-hmm. balance and and all of this kind of thing. Uh, 
Uh, it's not legal anymore to have people working, you know, 16 hours a day and only pay them for an eight hour shift. Like, oh, this is all stuff that I know has changed. But to watch it unfold over the course of a week and and to see these young cooks come in, I mean, not that there aren't still, listen, you know, everyone listening to this probably knows there's still plenty of cooks and chefs out there that are in the out, you know, the older mode, um, uh, you know, who, who go out and, and party really hard after a shift, um, all that stuff, you know, who have like a, a swag, you know, the, the swagger, you know, that Tony Bourdain yeah. used to write about. That all still exists, but um, I do think it was very interesting to me to see uh, a, a kitchen and a team that represented kind of this new ethos that we see. And, and you know, on Tuesday morning when they all sat down to do the menu meeting and, you know, they're, they're, they're updating each other on their weekends, you know, and, and one of them had been to a water park and, you know, one of them... Uh, had seen the movie Pig, you know, the Nicolas Cage movie. And yeah. uh, there wasn't one person who was like, oh, man, I got so effed up this week. You know, like, that would have mm -hmm. been everybody 20 years ago. <laughs> you know, men, women, like, they all would have looked haggard. Um, uh, probably somebody would have been smoking. Uh, you know, that, it, that that's, not the, that's not the norm anymore. You know, these people are all very, uh, they, 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 they treat, they take care of themselves. And, yeah. you know, another thing which, which uh, comes up a little bit in the book, but uh, it, it, there was actually more of it than I reported. Um, you know, the open way that these people talk about mental health was another mm -hmm. thing, you know, like I would, I would be interviewing someone in the prep kitchen and they would mention OCD or something. And like someone else would go, Oh man, me too. You know? And it was like, People didn't used to cop to that stuff, you know. Yeah. That was something you kept hidden. Uh, you, mm -hmm. know, you were, you know, it would be you would be embarrassed by it uh, in a, in a, in most kitchens, um, and, and probably in most places in society. You know, if you go far enough back. So uh, to see it all kind of writ large like that, you know, and to see it across a week uh, was was. Um, it was, it was, that was the magnitude of it really hit me. You know, it, it's funny. I, one night I was, uh, I, my last night there, which was a Saturday of, of observing, uh, Beverly and Johnny had gone home, the chef owners, the chef de cuisine had gone home, the sous chef had gone home. And <laughs> I had heard that very often the staff hung out late drinking wine on Saturday night. Uh, so I hung out and we started playing this like dice game. Um, mm -hmm. that one of the people on the team really liked to play. I think it's called threes, I think. Okay. Um, and at one point somebody said, uh, uh, oh, you know, we should start, we should start betting on this. And then <laughs> another person said, I don't think Beverly and Johnny would like it if we did that, you know? And so they, and we weren't going to play high stakes, but yeah. know, even that was like, no, 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 we don't want to, no gambling, you know? Mm -hmm. You know, years ago, that wouldn't have even been a thought. You know, the bosses are gone. It's one in the morning. You know, you're drinking wine. But, um, yeah, so for me, yeah, these two books on the heels of each other, I thought um, it was great. I mean, you know, as a writer, I, the last thing I ever want is to uh, start to get bored with my, my subjects, you know. So this was very interesting and intriguing to me and I think probably should be to a lot of people who read it. 
Very. I mean, I thought it was very interesting. And as someone who runs a podcast interviewing people in the food world, I really geeked out on a lot of the in-depth um, analysis you had on people. And um, I'll get to that in a second. But I think also I would love to ask the the style of writing or the, not the style of writing, but the process in which you wrote the two books is also vastly different. This you're talking about a book that you're not only viewing for the week, obviously it took a lot longer to write, but also you have your subject matter per se in quotes there. You can talk to them. They're very, you know, it, it's right there. You're viewing in real time. Things are a little bit more fresh in the mind. Chef drugs and rock and roll. I mean, I know you got to speak to a lot of the chefs from that era, but we're talking about stuff that happened 20, 30 years ago. So was the, did you find it easier in a sense to get better information out of this book as opposed to last? Or was it just like, what was that like for you having uh, like sources that were just right there and it, what, you weren't relying on like info that was from like two decades ago? Uh, yeah. Well, first of all, for Chef's Drugs and Rock and Roll, I interviewed a, a, approximately 220 people. Um, There's a lot of people. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I really like to interview in person. So I probably over the, the years I was working on it made a dozen trips to the West Coast, uh, not to mention to uh, New Mexico, not to mention to Boston, not to mention Chicago, not to mention Miami to interview Norman Van Aken. Uh, so yeah, I remember you know, sharing how much travel that was involved just in writing that it book. Was so much, um, uh, <laughs> but um, I, be- I just believe in that. I think it's easier to establish trust with your interview subjects. Um, mm-hmm. So that book, you know, paring it down was hard. The amount of travel was hard. Um, uh, chiseling away, figuring out exactly what the narrative was going to be with all that. You know, I literally had tens of thousands of pages of transcripts. This book, which is, I mean, if you put them next, I actually haven't done it yet. I should. If you put them next to each other, you know, uh, the dish looks much smaller, which mm. it is. It's a, it's a brisker read. Um, I don't think it's, you know, my goal was to kind of give a snapshot of the whole restaurant industry, you know, via this one dish. And I, you know, it's my own book, but I kind of think I did. And I really love how relatively short the book is. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, writing it was much more a much more linear exercise. Uh, I, I kind of, all, from the minute I had the idea for the book, I kind of knew what I wanted it to, to be like structurally. Um, and to be honest, those interviews, to your point, you know, a lot of stuff with Chef Drugs and Rock and Roll, because stuff was so long ago, People's memories were imperfect. And so I would have to sometimes interview like, you know, three or four people to get what to, to come to what I thought was a conclusion about what probably really happened, you know, in a certain mm-hmm. situation, uh, because not everyone I don't think anyone was lying to me. I just think people's memories get fuzzy, you know, yeah. um, especially as some people said to me, given how much substance was going around in the seventies and eighties. I think if uh, I remember correctly, you had to clarify in some spot. Like, I feel like you had, am I correct in saying there were some stories, not all of them. But there were some where like, there was just like different accounts from different people. And you, uh, you were like, this is what this, like, these are the clarifications. So no. Yeah. Like, like the people on the cover of that book were the original team of Michael's Santa Monica restaurant. And the original, everyone thinks Jonathan Waxman was the first chef there. And he was the chef there for five years. But for three months before Jonathan took over, he was the sous chef. 
And there was a guy named Ken Frank, who's still very successfully operating at his restaurant, La Toque, in the city of Napa. And, uh, you know, all four of the guys on the cover of the book, those four guys who were the top people in that kitchen when it opened, all four of them have a different recollection of how Ken left the restaurant. Mm-hmm. You know, whether he was fired, whether he quit, why he quit, like... <laughs> All four of them have a different accounting, and I honestly believe they all one hundred percent are telling me what they're what they remember. Um, uh, but this book, the inter to your point, the interviews were so all these people were so open and honest with me, and and so detailed. You know, I, I asked all of them when I interviewed them, "Can you give me, you know, a, a name uh, of somebody that uh, or a couple of people I could call to?" Uh, just kind of flesh out my profiles of you uh, because I was kind of thinking of all these profiles in the book, almost like magazine profiles. And mm-hmm. when I, when I started listening back to the interviews and started writing uh, the profiles, I, I actually didn't do any secondary interviews for the profiles because mm. I didn't feel like I needed anything else. Um, wow. I mean, I guess each profile could have been longer, but you know, you are going in this book through, you know, roughly a dozen people's stories. And I, I don't think they needed to be longer. And I don't, I don't, th- I think it would have really, I, I think it could have turned the read into kind of more of a, sl- a slot. And um, uh, so, yes, I mean, it was significantly easier. I, I mean, Chef Drugs and Rock and Roll, I had a contract to write it in two years. I took five years. Um, wow. And part of that time, I was just lost in the weeds. I just didn't know how to write it. Uh, you know, even though I had all these great interviews, um, yeah. in this book, I, I knew from before I picked the restaurant, how it was going to, how I was going to write it. Um, so it was very, you know, it was like I had a roadmap and I just knocked down the steps and I was done. Very awesome. Very awesome. Um, well, thank you for sharing that. I want to go to a, a section of the book, another quote. This is when you're discussing, uh, a somewhat a work in the restaurant named Ruben, uh, and you, Write an interesting blurb here that I found um, cool. I feel like we might have talked about this before. I know people in the food industry do. Uh, but you basically say, despite all of that, this is a time when Ruben began to morph into a member of what we, we might call the expressive food community, community. You basically go on to say that the workforce and restaurants can be divided into two populations, those for whom it is a job and those for whom it is a pursuit. And then you go on to say, you know, how the uh, expressive food community spends a lot of money on Dining, uh, really great gear and whatnot. Uh, for Cook you, book, yeah, cookbooks, cookbooks, all that stuff, yeah. So, I mean, is that when you look at like cooking in twenty twenty three? And obviously, this was written in twenty twenty one, but even now, do you find that that gap? Do you find that there's more people um, in the restaurant industry that are not as expressive of a food community with the changes in COVID, like? What have you seen, or do you find that there's more people? Like everyone in this book seems to be really, really, really invested in cooking. Um, but as you you got to write this in a really curious time where the pandemic had its Omicron wave and everything else, what were you finding? Were people kind of still having that really deep passion about it, um, even as like you've gone into 2022 and 2023, or do you think that some things have changed due to the persistence of the effects of COVID? I mean, um, I I don't think it's changed. I mean, the youngest mm-hmm. person in that kitchen was Jenna Cole, who is who was the garmage. Yeah. Um I mean, 
you know, she had gone to cooking school, did a stage uh, for three months in Spain, uh, came back to Chicago, got hired at the sister restaurant of Wherewithal, uh, which was which is still there, which is Parachute Restaurant is still there. Um, mm-hmm. And then after or mid COVID, she moved over uh, to Wherewithal. So she had only ever worked for these employers. That's how young, she, how early in her career she was. Um and she is, um, I mean, she, I say this in the book, she's the wherewithal wonder kid, you know, like she is uh, clearly, if she wants to be going places, she's so motivated and so good. I don't, I mean, I, I don't know what her palate is like because, you know, mm-hmm. she's not devising her own dishes, but as a worker, unbelievable, super motivated. Um, you know, uh, I, I, I don't know if everybody there, you know, I used to always say people who work in a restaurant like that, uh, you know, on the line, they all want to be chefs. I don't know if they all want to be chefs. You know, um, uh, you know, Ruben, who you just mentioned, who, uh, you know, was one of the two people running the hotline. Uh, you know, he uh, he had been a chef at a, at a restaurant in the Pacific Northwest. But he, it was a, it was a live fire restaurant. He felt like, you know, that was a, a, a somewhat limited uh, experience, and you know, he wanted to go back uh, to the front lines, right? And, uh, you know, and a lot of people, but there's always people who drop out and, or decide they want to do something else. Um, uh, I think uh, what's maybe a little bit different is that. Um, I think the industry is calibrating how hard you got to work and for how long before you might even think you you are a chef uh, or ready yeah. to be a chef. I mean, the time frame between a first job and, and becoming a chef has gotten so much shorter than it was in like in the in the seventies and eighties, right? Like when people people might put in like eight years as a sous chef before they even thought about opening their own restaurant. Now, Mm -hmm. you know, everyone wants to have a restaurant by the time they're 30, right? That's the line um, that I hear most often that that's like a yardstick. A lot of people measure themselves by, Um, but you know, if, if, and I'm not, I'm not, um, I'm not netting out here on any, side of this, right? But there is mm-hmm. a huge movement in society and in restaurants, you know, for more work-life balance, for 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 more humane hours, um, for people not doing work beyond their written or, you know, clearly defined job description. Yeah. Um, and, you know, all, all of those things traditionally have been things you, you had to do to learn, to advance, uh, in a kitchen and, and that's not okay anymore. So I, I, I think everyone's kind of figuring that out, but I do think most people in the kitchen at a restaurant, like what you, you just read what I wrote, um, mm. you know, what some people would simply call a chef driven restaurant. I think most yeah. people actually on the line cooking in those places probably are at least pondering becoming a chef. Uh, the one counterexample I would give is the server I profile in the book, uh, whose name is uh, Nusha, who mm-hmm. who is she's Iranian American, um, and she was very open that she has no desire to become a proprietor. You know, yeah, um, yeah. she's not like someone working at Eleven Madison Park 
you know, who has their, you know, five-year plan to, to open their own restaurant as, a, as an owner slash general manager dining room presence. Um, she loves the job. She loves being in the restaurant scene. She loves this style of restaurant, but she also loves reading and hanging out with her friends. And, you know, and, and she, I mean, listen, for employers, she's a dream, right? She, she doesn't want to, she doesn't want to advance. Um, mm-hmm. she, she, um, does her job extremely well. Uh, she's got a huge, uh, base of knowledge. Um, and she's not going to be asking for her next, you know, job title every six months. Uh, so, uh, you know, that's, she's an example to me of somebody that I think goes a little bit against what's become the grain of this world, you know, these, yeah. this sort of restaurant. Yeah, definitely. And I know when I had kind of messaged you setting up this podcast that I really enjoyed that section on her because it was so different. Um, it, it felt like, you know, you shared her story and what she was looking for. And like, it wasn't, it's not that it's just a job for her. Like, obviously she has a lot of care and craft, but there's other things in life that she also like wants to enjoy or is pursuing or take her time with. So I think that was very interesting and just your whole profile. And that gets into the broader conversation of the next thing I was going to bring up was the detail you put into sharing the stories of people in this restaurant. Um, like you said, it, it does feel like the way you write about them it is like, they are like acclaimed celebrities. Like they, like they are like these people that everyone should know about. Um, and in reality, that's everyone in the restaurant industry. Like I know there was a section on Nusha being bullied as a child or just having a tougher childhood and, other chefs, I think you uh, talk about a sous chef who um, basically like he was sent off to boarding school or military boarding school and his parents like weren't able to connect and like that kind of shaped his outlook on certain things. So like when you go into these topics and when you go into talking about these people, like everyone in the restaurant industry has a story. And I think for me, like beyond how a dish is made and what is going on, and I know this is a major point of the book, it's like the people that make up restaurants are like also like like they're all the main character in their own lives. I think that's very important that you shared that. For you, how important was it to be writing in a way that really highlighted that these people all have these like incredibly enriched like backstories that you could pull from and write about? And did that were you kind of surprised at that too when you started going? I mean, obviously, like Chef Drugs and Rock and Roll, these were like major players and people surrounding them, but this is like a team and people that like you would find in a restaurant in Chicago, a chef driven restaurant. But what was it like for you uh, to highlight their stories? I mean, everything you just said made me feel really good. You know, Um, (laughs) when you said, you know, I wrote, I profile all these people and, and, and write about them as if they were celebrities. uh, You know, that's the whole point of the book. Uh, Not that they, you know, I don't, not that they should, everybody should be on television or have a show. I don't mean that, but you know, for the longest time and listen, I've been around for a while. I'm as guilty of this as anybody, but we all, you know, we all focused on the chef. I mean, that was what we did forever. Um, uh, Now over the years, having collaborated with a lot of people and spent time in a lot of restaurants, I have come to know, line cooks. I have come to know the in-house butcher. I have come to know dishwashers. You know, I have come to know servers. Um, uh, and that's part of what I think where the idea for this book came from. Uh, but, um, no, to me, that was the whole point. And I told them when I was going to sit down with them, I said, you know, imagine that 
a reporter was going to write a magazine profile of you, right? Mm-hmm. I said, that's, that's what it's going to be like when we get to your portion of the book. And I, you know, uh, I, I've had many people when I tell them the idea of this book, you know, I, I take one dish at one restaurant and you meet all the people who are in the, you know, who contribute. And, and even though I say one dish, I say it in the singular, you know, all these people, so many people said to me, so how many dishes are in the book? And I'm like, no, no, no. The whole book is about the people who contribute to one dish. And, <laughs> and they're like, what? How can you fill yeah. a book with that? And this book easily could have been 100 pages longer. I mean, yeah. easily, easily. Um, uh, I mean, I, for example, I did, n- I, I, I go to the slaughterhouse. I did not interview, uh, the two guys on the kill floor, you know, who actually, uh, stun the animal, slit the throat, you know, slay yeah. the, an- I didn't interview them. I didn't interview every, a butcher. I didn't interview, um, I, I think it would have gotten redundant at some point to meet a lot of, you know, just like. Do you want to read 30 profiles? Um, but, um, you know, I could have, you know, I, I, I could have decided to go, uh, to the, you know, where they, to the salt marshes from where, you know, from where the, the sea salt comes, you know, um, Mm -hmm. I didn't do stuff like that. So I think because I kept it, you know, there's about a dozen profiles in the book. Um, and about half of those are farm people. Um, so I think it, I, I think the stories are different enough and um, uh, that, 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 that it, that approach uh, bore out, but um, no, I was not. So I believe everybody has a story. I believe everybody yeah. has a story and I've done, you know, I've, I've hung out with enough people where, um, you know, I heard this great advice once. Um, don't ask when you meet someone new, don't ask what they do, ask where they're from. Cause it's such a better conversation starter. Mm. And, um, because I've been, you know, I've been, I've been out a lot after hours with people, kitchen teams. And, um, and when I start conversations like that, I often end up getting somebody's whole story, you know? Um, and I don't, I don't know. I think if some, I, I'm not trying to pat myself on the back, but I think if somebody is a good listener, which I try to be, um, and has um, kind of an empathetic nature, which I try to have, um, then I think, you know, anybody's story, uh, you know, told over whatever, seven, eight, nine pages is, is going to be compelling. Um, yeah. Uh, especially if, if they are open, right? I, I always say this, it takes two to tango, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I cannot write a great profile of someone who, uh, is uh, inwardly focused, who, who, who is, is um, editing their story in their head as they talk to me. Um, there were details people asked me not to keep in or not to put yeah. in that they told me, that, but they wanted me to know because they thought it would give me a little more insight into them. Um, and of course, I honor those requests. But um, no, if I'm honest, I, I wasn't surprised. Um, the thing that's surprising is, is people are reading the book. Uh, two people now have described it to me as a page turner. And hmm. I, that is, I mean, that makes me very happy, but that's, I never expected somebody to use an adjective like that. Really? Why is that? Uh, 
Well, I mean, I don't know. It's not a mystery novel. It's not a, you know, it's not a spy novel. It's not a, uh, I'm not writing about nuclear proliferation or something like that. Um, um, And uh, I do try to always um, create as much forward momentum as I can. But also, you know, you spend a year writing something and and going over, you know, as I said, I am officially diagnosed with OCD. You know, I take medicine for it. And uh, one consequence of that, and it's something I still, I don't take as long doing it as I used to, but when I'm working on a book, I will read it over. I mean, I can't even give you a number how many times I've read the book, you Hmm. know, while I was working on it um, to try to tweak the pacing or, um, you know, uh, I like to plant things. I don't like... Like there's a person who shows up very late in the book who talks about dishwashing with me, a guy named David Lund. And uh, it occurred to me because he's not, he, he was doing the gold belly program that the restaurant was doing during COVID. You know, he wasn't part of the kitchen team. That part of the book is very late in the book. And because he was doing the gold belly program for the restaurant at the time, he was never in the, he wasn't on the hop, he wasn't in the kitchen during service. And so I never mentioned him earlier in the book, right? Yeah. But I didn't want to have a guy all of a sudden show up on page two something. Uh, mm-hmm. So I, one, one of the things I did when I re- reread it on one pass was go, oh, here's a great place where I can mention David, right? So yeah. you've met him. So when you see him later on, he's, you're not like, you know, it's not like new information. You know, and mm-hmm. and there were one or two servers like that who I mentioned very late in the book, um, who I just hadn't had a reason to mention sooner. But you know, I worked their names into a little section where some, you know, you see a little snippet of of uh, the chef de cuisine expediting, right, and talking to yeah. these servers. And uh, that's the kind of thing I do. I, I there are benefits to it. I I I I do it. I do it way more than anybody should. It gets it, at some point it's diminishing returns, but. Um, yeah, so when someone says page turner, you know, I I I'm very proud of the book, but I can almost I can barely stand to look at it for a little while. Very fair. Do you know printed wise around what the page count is? Oh, you saw it in PDF form? Mm-hmm. All right, well we're gonna fix that. But I'll tell you exactly. Uh it is two hundred and sixty-eight pages. Yeah, so and I remember reading it like the first night you sent it over to me, I was getting ready for this. Um, that's why we pushed out a little bit. The uh, I read the first night. I had like a couple, an hour or two to read it. And I was already on page 60 of PDF um, when it was like time for me to like finish my day and whatnot. So I do think the pacing is good. I think you started out really interesting. I think what benefits it too for people that like to read and like, like books that are well-paced is it being a dish. Everything feels very like tight and woven in. So like, even if you go off into a story, it like comes back very quickly to what we're focused on, where we're going, how we're getting there. I feel like you have a very good concise way of writing about one topic and then branching those stories, but never feels like a burden. I guess like there's some books I read and like if the author goes into a story about someone else, it almost feels like a burden because we're going away from the main story, but it all kind of ties nicely together. So you can see at least on the readers on my opinion that you do, put that care and time in to write and make sure everything flows really nicely. So thank you very much for that. I mean, I don't know if we've made it clear to everybody, but um, 
you know, the, the book is told during a service mm-hmm. um, and it's basically, you know, at the beginning, there's some uh, expositional stuff about the restaurant, the team, the fact that it's a tasty menu restaurant, what's being served that week. Um, but then basically we, we follow one party's main course, uh, or I shouldn't say main course, meat course, because it's a tasting menu from the time yeah. the chit comes into the kitchen to when the plate is dropped at the table. Right. And so, uh, you know, and I, I used to work for a film producer and I used to have to write, um, reports about screenplays people had submitted to us. And we actually had mm. a form in the office. And one of the questions this guy had on the form was, uh, is there a ticking clock? Right. And, um, you know, if you watch a lot of movies, you start to realize very often there's, you know, there's Mm -hmm. something coming up that, that creates tension in the narrative, right? Like someone's about to go off to college or someone's about to go off to war or there's a huge deadline or, or, uh, uh, you know, it's opening night of the show is coming up, you know? Or somebody's about to get married and the, our hero has to make that, you know, break that up before, you know, his dream girl gets away. You know, that there's always a ticking clock. Um, yeah. And in this book, uh, I do say this early on, uh, from the time a chit comes into the kitchen to when the meat course went out, it was roughly an hour and 15 minutes. Um, so, you know, as we as I go through the service, as people are working on parts of that dish in the kitchen, We'll take one of them and break away and and give a profile. And then, as you said, come right back to the kitchen. Right. But Mm -hmm. I think the fact that it is happening during a service and it's a very busy night. This is written on a Saturday. um, And they were coming back from COVID, which I write about. So, um, you know, it was a night where they were doing 92 covers and they they hadn't done anything like that many covers since before COVID. Right. So this was like 15 months after the lockdown started. And, and so they were kind of getting back into, you know, uh, fighting shape, you know, as the boxers would say. And uh, so, yeah, I wanted, I I mean, that's why I didn't just write the book as a series of profiles. That's, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, I don't know that I think would have been really dull. Um, But um, yeah, I think interspersed the way I thought about it was like on a, you know, if you have a website and you click on a, a link, you know, on a, one of the tabs or on a link and you go to another page of the site, you know, like yeah. the about page or, you know, uh, to me that this, that's what this, I mean, the reader has no control over what profile they get when, but to me, it's like, oh, you're watching Jenna do something. Let me click on Jenna, you know, and you, and then you, it opens up and you have her profile, right? Yeah. And then you close it and you're back on the homepage which is the mm-hmm. service like that in my mind, that's how it functions. Yeah, no, that totally makes sense. Um, and then lastly, uh, before I, I kind of have a final question on the book, but uh, I'd be remiss not to ask you about Beverly and Johnny. And I asked them more so to the end of this podcast, because I think that's one thing that uh, you do while, while writing the book is you discuss them, but then you kind of go into these different players. And then I know you mentioned Beverly and Johnny um, at the end. Uh, what, you know, I, I feel like if you're going to, you, you write the book, there's a lot in them in there about the book. I'm sure on other podcasts, you've spoken about them and kind of whatnot. I guess my only question for uh, for you about them is what do you think it speaks to them that uh, they allowed you to come in and not only highlight them, but highlight their team 
And um, what did you learn about how they manage, how they run a restaurant uh, when writing a book, when writing this book and when writing about the employees and kind of the culture in the kitchen and how they were working with each other? Sure. Um, well, uh, well, first of all, in terms of what it says about them that they uh, let me do this, I, I guess I should say, first of all, everybody collectively let me do this. So I, when I was speaking to them long distance about doing the book and, and we had a few zoom calls and they, they, you know, they were, they were up for it. And then I wrote, uh, an email, which was basically a letter to the staff. Um, I'm actually not sure if it was read to the staff or circulated. Um, I think they may have read it to them at a, at a, at a, at a nightly lineup, but I'm not sure. But basically the letter said, you know, this is what I'm going to come in. I'm going to ask you a lot of questions about your life. Um, I'm going to write about you in a book. Um, you know, this is not something anybody will be compensated for because that's, um, you know, to me, a violation of, you know, the journalistic principles. And um, uh, and you're not going to get to approve the book. It's my book. And I'm asking for you all to basically do me a favor and give me, you know, some access and some personal details um uh, to write this book and you know then beverly and johnny got back to me and said everybody's on board um uh in terms of what it says about them i mean i think it probably says equal amounts about the three of us i i think we all have good reputations you know mm -hmm. i i always invite people if they don't know me and i'm asking for even just a a, a real detailed interview I always tell people you can call anybody I've ever worked with. If I'll give you their phone numbers, <laughs> you know, yeah. no pun intended, but I'm an open book and, and Beverly and Johnny have really amazing reputations as uh, both as uh, restaurateurs and as, as bosses and as um, people, uh, you know, they do a lot of altruistic things um, even as they're, you know, we're struggling to come out of COVID. They were doing all that stuff. Um, uh, in terms of their management style, I mean, it's funny. There was a moment where um, Thomas, who was the sous chef, and Taylor uh, Ploshahansky, who was the uh, chef de cuisine, uh, they they were having a they had a little bit of an exchange during service, and she said something like, uh, "You know, two, you know, two meat, one." Uh, rare or something like that. And, and Thomas said, do you mean two meat and one of them is rare? Or do you mean two meat plus a third one that's rare? <laughs> and they had a little debate about it, right? Very politely. And I actually, I, I, again, it's one of those details. I just felt like it was slowing things down. But I, at one point I had written like, this is what constitutes a fight at wherewithal. <laughs> like, you know, like, like that was about debate. the biggest that was about <laughs> the biggest conflict I saw. Now, you know, granted there was a, a writer sitting there watching them for a week, but yeah. you can kind of tell what the temperature of a place is, you know. You can get a vibe for like, are people happy there? I, I know a number of people who told me they love that restaurant. I, I was just trading direct messages yesterday uh with one of the people in the book. Um, and she was like, I can't wait to read the book. Wherewithal mm -hmm. was the most special place I've ever worked. You know, um, and, uh, you know, they and I have to say also that was somewhat deliberate on my part to pick a restaurant like that, because yeah. 
Um, I did not want to have, uh, for me, the moral quandary. Other writers wouldn't be troubled even for a second, or they may even have salivated at the idea. But I didn't want to be in the situation where this restaurant kind of agreed to be the subject of a book around this concept I had, right? Mm-hmm. Like to me, that's a, that's a, that's a favor. That is an mm-hmm. unbelievable favor to grant a stranger. And I didn't want a situation where I, I came to realize something unsavory was going on or these people are kind of full of it, you know, and their public mm-hmm. images and who they really are. Uh, Beverly and Johnny have become dear friends of mine. I mean, as have some of the farmers in the book, uh, uh, you know, as and I'm, I'm, I, I, I'm in touch with, uh, I don't know if they would call me a friend. I would probably do anything for them after what they gave me. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, there's like, I, last time I was in Chicago, I had a two hour coffee with Taylor Ploshahansky, who's, who's the chef de cuisine in the book. Um, uh, but, um, I didn't want to, I didn't want to see something negative in a big way, uh, that I was going to have to go, uh, now I got to write this, you know, now I got to write this really unflattering stuff about these people. Um, and, and maybe I would have written about it and maybe I wouldn't have, I don't know, but I didn't want to have that dilemma. I've had that dilemma in the past. Um, it makes me, it's just not what I do. I'm not an investigative reporter. Uh, my, my general uh, uh, disposition is to just not engage with people who I think are bad, at, you know, bad characters, bad actors, uh, who we all kind of know behind the scenes are not treating their staff very well. And, and, you know, no journalist has managed to get enough of it on, on the record yet, but you know, we all kind of know that person's a jerk. Yeah. I wanted decent people. I really did. And, and it's funny because, uh, agents and editors, they're always saying, you know, where's the conflict? You know, is there, are we going to see people arguing? Uh, are, you know, are we going to see them have a problem with a customer? Um, you know, people always want that friction. You know, they yeah. feel like books have to have that. And my belief was given the, um, just, this is a cliche, but I, th- I think it's still true. Even as much as things have changed uh, in your industry, I do think it is still largely a uh, receptacle for people who don't fit anywhere else, you know, yeah. who, have, who have had, you know, like, you know, in the book, as you said, one character um, grew up with severe ADD. Uh, one character uh, talks very openly about depression, even suicidal thoughts. Um, some of these people worked in jobs that they found very trying and they hated, you know. Uh, uh, some people have family problems. Uh, you mentioned the case of Nusha, who was bullied uh, as a child. Um, my my belief, which very much came true, was that there would be plenty of conflict in each person's individual story um, hmm. and that I didn't need anyone uh, at wherewithal or at one of the farms to be a villain, you know, yeah. or to be an antagonist, you know? Um, I, I didn't need that person because there were people like that in all of their stories. Um, yeah. So that, um, yeah. But I, you also asked about their practices. I mean, 
you know, health insurance is something employees at Wherewithal could have. That is not by any means a, um, a normal thing uh, in the industry. Um, they, I mean, they were correcting people during service right up to the last night, the night I was observing that right up to the last night where, um, you know, which was the last day they were going to be serving that particular menu. Um, but even with, you know, 92 people in the, uh, um, eating dinner that night and everything else that was going on and all this pers- all the stress they were under behind the scenes, you know, trying to come out of this pandemic. Uh, I never, I never saw them raise their voice. You know, yeah. I never did. I never did. Um, I never had, you know, of the 20 or so people, I don't profile all 20, but of the 20 mm-hmm. or so people in the book who I met, um, all of whom could DM me, you know, uh, yeah. nobody reached out to me and said, Hey, I just want you to know, you know what I mean? No. Uh, not even in the, not even in the time since they've left the restaurant or since the restaurant closed. Hmm. Uh, so, um, you know, they're, they, they, I think it for, I don't know. I think it comes down to hiring for them. You know, yeah. I think they tend to hire, uh, in a very insightful way. It may just be intuitive. But I think by and large, they bring people on who, um, you know, aren't going to have an attitude, who aren't going to yell at their um, colleagues. Um, yeah. You know, at least that's my impression. You know, am I going to am I going to open up either one day and find out the whole thing was a ruse? I mean, I guess that's possible. I would be very, very, very surprised. Uh, I'm a pretty good judge of character myself. Uh, um, so. Uh, yeah. Does that answer your question? Yeah, definitely does. No. And I think, you know, there's always those moments. I, I, I had a podcast when I was starting out where I interviewed someone and I don't need to detail who, who that person is, but you know, since taking it down, shared why I took it down. Um, but, you know, someone I got 45 minutes with ends up being not the best owner operator, what have you. So I definitely get that. But I mean, you obviously I've spent a good time with them and um, they did it from what I know, they also have a really good reputation. So I think it was a, yeah. a good book choice as well. Uh, last I question. Mean, I used to, I used to sit around, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I mean, I, you know, in, in our downtime and I've, you know, I've, I've had, uh, I, I went and had a drink with them at, at, at parachute last time I was in town and we've met for lunch. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, a lot of our conversation is about how do we, you know, it's not my industry, but, I guess I have something of a megaphone at this point. Um, uh, but, you know, how we can make the cooking trade better. You know, we mm. talk about that. We talk about that. Now, they're the ones who can enact, enact stuff. But, you know, we sit around and brainstorm stuff sometimes. Um, yeah. Uh, and, you know, that's all off the record. I'm not going to write about it. It's, it's, it's just stuff. That's where our conversations go a lot of the time. And mm-hmm. um, I, you know, I don't know what else to say about them, but, you know, I think the world of those guys and and pretty much everybody I met. I mean, it was a really special group of people. I feel very fortunate, especially not having met any of them before I got there. Um, I feel very fortunate that um, what what listen, I, I told you I, I offer them. Uh, the uh, you know the invita- I gave them the invitation to call people and ask mm-hmm. about me. Um, I you know I definitely called a few friends in Chicago, uh, mm-hmm. you know to ask 
uh, about them and everybody had really positive things to say. Um, so yeah, I don't know. Awesome. I, I, I feel very good about it. And, and, uh, like I said, uh, Beverly and Johnny at the very least have become, uh, close friends. Good to hear. Point for me being, um, gets the end of the book. Spoiler alert for those reading. And if you find this too much of a spoiler, obviously we can edit it out, but basically, you know, wherewithal is no longer open. Um, and so big part of this book, which I found fascinating too, you get to the end and it's, I don't want to say a sad ending, but it's just the nature of restaurants. People move on. You know, I, I love the way you worded it and I want to, I don't know if that's quote written, written down, but you basically say in your afterward, most of the principal characters had pushed off long before this book was finished. And I just love that phrasing. It's just the idea of the food industry. I think, and I hope when readers read it, they're impacted by how fleeting the restaurant world can be. Like you have these great, this great nucleus of people, these, these great relationships, great memories, great working, and nothing's promised. Like from reading your book, like amazing team, great people who work with, all these people have these stories They come together, they're putting out great food and wherewithal has plumbing issues and they're having issues with COVID and the Omicron wave and diners stopping and starting. And I know Eater did a piece on them closing and those were the major points cited as well was plumbing issues and COVID. And so, you know, the restaurant industry, while it's beautiful, while it has these great characters and it has these great moments, it's also very unforgiving. It's very hard. And like you can have all the great things in place, the great menu, the great food, the great people, and just still other shit goes wrong. So for you writing the book, ending the book, you know, when you look at a chef drugs, rock and roll, those people are like more so they're like a part of history and they're part of what made the restaurant industry in that time. But these are people that some might not be in the restaurant industry anymore. Some might be cooking in different cities. Some might not be involved with producing food that they once were. Was that like a, a mind trip for you? Kind of like, just thinking about how much probably changed in everyone's life in the what two years since you had detailed their lives on page? Uh, I mean, the only thing that was really the curveball was the fact that the restaurant didn't make it uh, this far. You know, I had a, um, you know, in my mind, I had this fantasy of like, oh, if only the book had come out a little earlier, maybe it would have, you know, if it did really well, maybe there would have been, you know, all these people out there who wanted to go to wherewithal, you know, in Chicago, tourists, you know, everybody. Yeah. And, and maybe that would have gotten them over the hump, you know, if the book does well. Um, uh, you know, um, no, that was really the only curveball. I have to add, they are opening a modern Ukrainian restaurant in the same space. Beverly and Johnny okay. own that space. And it may even be open by the time this airs. It's very close to opening. They've been posting about it on social media a lot. Um, so, you know, they're going to have a new restaurant. I'm sure they'll get a lot of press. Hopefully people who read this book will want to go eat at this place. It's called Anela. And, uh, uh, you know, their restaurant parachute is, is just a block and a half away. Uh, but no, it's funny. Um, cause in the, in the, I've just been around so many restaurants, um, uh, you know, in and out over the course of several years. I actually said at one point in the book, uh, or uh, not in the book, in life, mm -hmm. I, I said once to Beverly, um, not in an interview, but I made the point, I said, you know, uh, it's entirely possible 
that by the time the book comes out, uh, you know, none of these people will still be working for you. And she said to me earlier this year before the restaurant ended up closing, you know, that that had almost come to be, you know, mm. uh, the Taylor was still there, the chef de cuisine. Uh, but she was like, do you remember when you said that thing to me? And <laughs> I said, I do. Um, uh, so I wasn't that, uh, I wasn't that, um, stunned by that to me. Um, you know, uh, 15 years ago, I wrote a book, uh, in collaboration with David Waltuck. Uh, it was a Chanterelle cookbook for this landmark restaurant that used to be in New York. And the book came out like in the 29th year of the restaurant and the restaurant closed that year. Mm. Uh, now 30 years is about as good as it gets for a restaurant. Um, but you know, I've always said, I'm extra thankful that that book exists and that I got to work on it because it is a document of a moment in time. Um, and it is a document of that restaurant, which most restaurants don't have. Um, you know, wherewithal never did a cookbook. Um, it's another, the space is now transformed. I haven't seen it yet, but it's, you know, it's a new, it's a different restaurant or about to be. Um, yeah. and I'm very, um, happy that it still exists between the cover of these books, you know, that there is a service there to be observed on the page um, mm. and a team uh, who were all collaborating at a moment in time and, and farms that thankfully are all still, I think, thriving right now. Um, yeah. But, um, uh, you know, this, this, this web that we get a look at um, uh, to me is great. Uh, and, and that I'm, it sounds corny, but it's just true. I'm so, it's like that person who wrote me yesterday who said, I can't wait to read the book. That was the most special place I ever worked. I mean, mm -hmm. I think that's going to be an emotional experience for that person, you know, and I hope it is. Uh, uh, so, uh, the last thing I'd say, you know, when you said nothing is promised and you got to appreciate what you have, I mean, you know, we'll see where the people in this book end up and it is, a, it was a very small team, but, you know, in addition to restaurants, um, you know, just the friends, you could, the lifelong friends you might make there, um, you know, there are these moments in time that people talk about when they were in what, in hindsight, was kind of a landmark restaurant. I mean, yeah. people talk about the opening crew at Alinea, you know, it's it was like an all-star team, you know. Now, at the time, they were all kids, you know, but mm -hmm. the, the intern was Greg Backstrom who now has Olmstead and, and three other restaurants in New York City. You know, yeah. he, he was the intern when that restaurant opened. You know, Alex Stupak was the pastry chef. Um, uh, you know, all these amazing uh, chefs were on the line. Um, I'm only not listing them because I'm not sure how many were there on opening day. But a lot of people who mostly, mostly in Chicago, have become very successful chef restaurateurs. Um, uh, so, um, you know, and there's there's a handful of those, you know, and I I do think even those people at the time couldn't have known that they were all going to end up being that successful, you know, that they were there for this. You know, I say this sometimes about fellow writers. I'll say we were all kids together, hmm. you know, like when we were starting out or I'll, I'll remember some table I was at having, you know, a meal once with three colleagues and. You know, we were all just starting out collaborating, yeah. excuse me, on cookbooks, collaborating on cookbooks and, uh, you know, trying to be writers of our own stuff. 
And now, you know, now we all are, you know, and some of us yeah. have podcasts and some of them have gone on to be on television and, and, uh, you know, but you don't have to have that outcome for that time to have been very special. Uh, you know, I was an assistant in the film business. Some of the people I knew at that time, my, my colleagues are writing for sitcoms or, um, you know, or hour long dramas, uh, or their, uh, studio executives, you know, and these were the mm -hmm. people I used to meet at the monkey bar in New York city before it was, before it got had its second life when it was a crappy dive bar in Midtown, uh, not dive bar, but a place that was yeah. well past its prime. We used, you know, I used to hang with this group and a lot of those people have become very successful in the film business. And it's, it's really funny to look back, uh, on, on, on a moment like that. So. Yeah, I do think, especially in restaurants where you're really in the trenches with people, you know, you, you, you like I used to do theater in mm -hmm. high school and college. And I used to say that really accelerated the uh, intimacy and the, and the depth of the relationship, just doing something that intense together. Um, and the way you celebrate when it was over, um, uh, you know, all of that. So I do think it's really important, not just in your industry, but in any life situation that if you, uh, you know, it's like the four kids in Stand By Me, if anyone ever saw the movie Stand By Me, you know, mm -hmm. that and a lot, that's about a lot of stuff, that movie. But one of the things it's, is, it's about is just the friendship between those four kids and, and what a precious, short-lived, you know, moment that was uh, in all of their lives. And yeah. I'm going on and on about this, but I, that's, I, I, I do love and hope, uh, that this book, you know, is kind of a, uh, you know, just kind of freezes that moment, um, yeah. so that people can get a sense of what that restaurant was and what the people were like and, and the people who were there can, can relive it a little bit when they, when they want to. Definitely. No, I think, and I think you do an excellent job of that. And I, there's just something interesting about reading that, like that afterward. I think it really hits you um, that if you're not in the industry, I think it will hit harder. But I do think for myself, it was more so like, yeah, like it made me think about times in the restaurants where I think back of a six month period where I worked for a chef before I moved to New York to work for a restaurant group and those moments. And, you know, uh, three months then I had at a French restaurant in Chautauqua, New York for my externship in CIA and like, just being a part of that little team. And that was the last year that restaurant was open and they had received their, um, was a triple a four diamond award for like the 15th year in a row. And then there was like, that was it. So, um, moments like that, I think are very interesting and I, I really um, appreciate them. Andrew talking about where people can find your book. What is the best site? Um, if you want to share that, share information on where people can find you, all of that information, I think now would be a good time. Oh, thank you for that. Well, the book, I mean, I, I'm very fortunate. It's published by an imprint of HarperCollins. The imprint is called Mariner Books. Um, so because it's part of the HarperCollins family, um, it has great distribution. I mean, mm -hmm. it's available on, you know, all the big online sites, um, you know, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Books A Million, wherever, wherever you like to do that. Um, uh, my personal preference, if if you're actually going to do it, is for people to go buy it at an independent bookstore. Um, mm. uh, if you're not actually going to do that, then buy it online, but I'd rather you support an independent bookstore. Um, and um, in terms of me, you can find me. My website is andrewtalkstochefs.com. 
Com. Uh, that is also the name of my podcast, which you can get wherever you get your podcasts. Um, we're six years in now and we're still going. Um, and then uh, social media, the best place is Instagram. Uh, my handle there is Tokeland Andrew, and it's Toke like the hat, T-O-Q-U-E-L-A-N-D, Andrew, not Toke like the thing that's become legal in so many states. Um, but it's Tokeland Andrew, and uh, that is the best place to find me on social media. And if anybody has any desire to send me a note or something, uh, there is a contact uh, form uh, uh, at the Andrew Talks to Chefs website, or you can DM me on Instagram. I do, I do my best to respond. Um, uh, the volume has gone up in the last year, but I, I really do try to respond to everybody. Perfect. And I will share all that in the description of this podcast. Andrew, thank you for coming on the show. I just want to say, honestly, obviously, thank you for coming on, taking the time. Um, I know over the years we've talked, you know, you've helped me with writing. You gave me a really cool piece of advice a few years ago. Um, you know, I, cause I, I want to, I love writing and I currently do write freelance a ton. I remember like asking you in a brief phone call, you know, I'd like to maybe write a book sometime. And you were kind of like, you know, books are long. Like, look at short form writing, see where that gets you. And I do now write a lot of freelance articles about the restaurant industry, about food industry and stuff. And so I do think a book is more in the future at some point. I think that'd be a, 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 a task I'd like to accomplish at some point in my life. But the ability to write short form on different topics and for different people and different clients, it was very, it was very useful advice. So I don't know that I've ever shared that with you, but it, it was something that was helpful and it's helped me not only make money, but really share um, more of my work out there um, for different clients. So I just wanted to say a brief thank you for that note because it helped a lot. So That means the world to me. Thank you. I had When you started talking just now, I was like, what advice did I give him? But <laughs> when you said it, then I was like, oh, right. I remember that. Um, yeah. I'm so glad. I'm so glad. And thank you for telling me, you know, so often, you know, when you, when you, when you, been around long enough to, to for people to want advice from you, you know, or an introduction to somebody. You you never hear how it turned out. From I mean, I know you write because I see your stuff around. Um, mm -hmm. But you know, very often they don't tell you. They don't tell you how the meeting you set up for them went. You know, they don't tell you they're going to open a restaurant with the person you connected them with. Yeah. Um, you know, you read about it on a website. So thank you very much for telling me that. I it. Uh, I love being helpful. I mean, when, when I can, when I have the time to do it, I, I, you know, I learned a lot of lessons the hard way and I'm happy to spare other people that, that pain. So thank you for that. Of course. Thank you. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for listening. I hope you all go pick up the dish. Uh, really excellent book. I can recommend it myself as I've read it. And obviously just having Andrew on the show and knowing him over the years, I, I knew going into it, it was going to be a good read. So go check it out. Andrew, thanks for coming and um, we'll talk soon. Thank you, Ray. Great to be with you again. So there you have the interview with Andrew Friedman. Thank you all again for listening. Please go get a copy of The Dish. It is available in many different sites. I left a link in the description. Highly, highly, highly suggested. I have read it. I do think it's incredible. Go check it out. Also, if you're listening on Spotify or Apple, please leave a review. And if you like newsletters, go to lioncookthoughts.com, put in your email, and hit subscribe to get the latest Prepless Items newsletter that goes out every Monday. Andrew, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you all for listening, and I'll see you on the next Lion Cook Thoughts podcast.